1 John is near the back of the Bible. You might be better off starting at the back and going left a few books. It's the first of three letters that the Apostle John has written to the church. And it is our text this morning as we continue to go through our series on the five solas of the Reformation. This week we are at week four, Solus Christus, Jesus Christ alone. And our text is 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord, we ask this morning that you would use your word in our lives. That as we hear it, as we meditate upon it, that we would be changed by it. That we would be made more and more in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we would seek him in all that we do. This we ask in Christ's precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. It is one thing to teach truth from the Bible. It is another thing to teach the most important truths from the Bible. And this is something that we as a church, that we as Christians must be ready to do, to teach, to understand, and to testify to the most important truths in the Bible. In the time of the Reformation, these critical truths were distilled down into five categories. We've been looking at them each in turn. Sola Scriptura, the doctrine of Scripture alone is our authority. Sola gratia, the doctrine that we are saved by grace alone. Sola fide, that we are saved through faith alone. And now this week we come to solus Christus, that we are saved by Jesus Christ alone. That Jesus is the only Savior, and He saves us. And so as we look at this doctrine this morning, I would like us to ask and answer two questions. They are fundamental and foundational, not just to this truth, but to the Christian life. Those of you that are members of Christ Church and have been through a membership interview will recognize these questions. They're usually a form of what I ask every potential new member to tell me, to tell our session about the Lord Jesus Christ. The first question is, who is Jesus? That's important and foundational. If we don't know who Jesus is, we don't know the Bible. 
The Bible is actually closed to us. It is not open to us because the story of the Bible is the story of Jesus. The second important question is, what has Jesus done? Because it is not enough to just know who Jesus is. The Apostle James tells us that even the devils and demons know Jesus. But they tremble. We must also not only know Jesus, but we must know what He has done and how that applies to our life. So the two questions, who is Jesus? And what has Jesus done? The first part of our answer of who is Jesus is that Jesus is God. Now, in the time before the Reformation, it's important to understand that there was an imbalance about the teaching of God. God was viewed as being very distant from people. And this was reflected in the life of the church. If you could imagine going to a worship service in the 15th century, you would be ushered into a large stone building in a large room. And you would sit on the pews, and there would be a priest far up at the front. But what would happen is the priest would speak with his back to the people. He would not address them. He would be speaking to God. And he would be speaking in a foreign language, a language you wouldn't understand and know. And so people came, and it is no surprise that they felt distant from God. They felt that they couldn't approach God. They didn't even know God's language. How could they talk to God? God wouldn't understand me. I don't use God language. And so what oftentimes happened was people would sit in the pews and merely murmur and mumble under their breath prayers. And if you can imagine that going out throughout all of the room, it became a loud cacophony of noise. The priests were there not to tell people about Jesus, not to tell people about God. The priests were there to serve as mediators between God and man. Because man was not allowed to approach Jesus, to approach God. As a matter of fact, people weren't even allowed in their prayer life to pray to God. They were encouraged instead to pray to saints or to pray to Mary. And it was put in terms that just seem ridiculous to us today. They were told that they should pray to Mary because Jesus could not refuse something his mother asked him. As if Jesus is an enemy of the people. As if Jesus is so distant, he needs to be manipulated by his mother into hearing from the people. The church saw God merely as the punisher of sins. They knew well the verse, our God is a consuming fire. And they had lost sight of who Jesus is. Jesus had also become distant. All of the icons, the paintings, the statues of Jesus depicted him in a way that was otherworldly, that was so different from the people in the pew. 
And yet Jesus also was viewed as being separate and distinct from God. God was viewed as wrathful and stern. And Jesus was viewed differently. But what the reformers did was they emphasized first and foremost that Jesus is God. And this came about because of a return to the Bible. They did more than just theorize about Jesus. They actually taught the Bible. And this should give us some insight into the interconnectivity of the solas of the Reformation. Because the cry was, the Bible alone, when they wanted to find out who Jesus was, where did they go? To the Bible. Because the Bible was their authority. And there were three main passages that they looked at. The first was John chapter 1. John began his gospel by explaining who Jesus is. He said that Jesus existed in eternity. In the beginning was the Word, John said. He's consciously echoing the language of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So before any of creation, in the beginning, Jesus already was. He was from all eternity. John also expressly calls Jesus God. He says, and the word was God. Jesus is the one who has life in him for mankind. Jesus is the one who has life and light in verse 4 of chapter 1. And there was also this intimate relationship between Jesus and God. The word was with God. And this fellowship that the Son has with the Father is the foundation of the fellowship that we have with God. John picks that up in the first chapter of this letter that we're looking at this morning. In verse 3 of chapter 1, he says that because Jesus has fellowship with the Father, we can have fellowship with the Father and with Jesus. The second main passage that they looked at was Hebrews chapter 1. And in Hebrews 1, we see Jesus described as the creator of the world. Now, John had testified to this as well. He said that all things were made through him. But Hebrews goes into more detail about this. It says that Jesus, the Son of God, laid the foundations of the world. And that the heavens are the work of his hands. But not only is Jesus the creator of all things, Jesus didn't just put the world into motion and stand back and see what would happen. No, Jesus is the sustainer of the world. We don't think about this often enough. We, th- we think about natural processes like gravity and the seasons and weather. All of that is in place because of Jesus. If it weren't for Jesus, the world would explode upon itself. It would not be able to maintain its existence. The world remains in existence because of Jesus. The planets orbit around the sun because of Jesus. The moon comes up because of Jesus. He sustains all creation. The third chapter that they looked at was Colossians chapter 1. And there was repetition in Paul's writings of both what John had said and what was in Hebrews. 
Jesus is talked about as the creator in Colossians 1.16, just as he is in John 1 and in Hebrews 1. But here there is also an emphasis on Jesus as being the revealer of God. Paul writes that Jesus is the image of God. Now, we learn about things from images, don't we? Think of all of the things in all of your schooling that you have learned about simply by looking at pictures of them. I've never been to the Taj Mahal. I've never seen the Eiffel Tower. And yet I have a perfect understanding of what they look like and how they operate because I've seen images of them. Images are teaching tools. And so Jesus is the very express image, Hebrews 1 says. He is the image of God, Colossians 1 says. He is the one who shows us the Father. Paul writes in Colossians that God is invisible, but Jesus is not. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And that means we can know God because of Jesus. Do you remember in the Gospels when Nathanael came up to Jesus and he said, Lord, we only need one thing. Please show us the Father. And Jesus' response is insightful. He said, have I been with you so long? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus shows us who God is because Jesus is God. But the second thing we must answer to our question, who is Jesus, is that Jesus is man. Now, we acknowledge this even with respect to his name. John calls him Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus' name was given to him because the angel told Joseph that he would save his people from their sins. His people being humanity, being men. Women, children, called out from sinful humanity. They are Jesus' people. Jesus is a man. He was born at a specific time, in a specific place, and given a specific name. Jesus was truly and really human. He was born of Mary. He didn't descend from heaven fully grown. No, He was born a man, and this truth is so important that the Lord predicted it centuries beforehand. Isaiah wrote in chapter 7, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then later in chapter 9, Isaiah writes, For to us a child is given. Excuse me, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It was predicted centuries before that Jesus would be born a man. And it was announced at the day of his birth by the angel. Luke 1, 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And then the angel went to Joseph 
And as he considered these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary for your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. You see, this means that Jesus is like us. Now, not exactly, because Jesus is also God. But Jesus is like us in that he has a real body. Jesus got tired. Jesus was hungry. Jesus was thirsty. Jesus was sinned against by other people. People lied to Jesus. People stole from Jesus. People made fun of Jesus and mocked him. You see, in that sense, Jesus is just like us. He is a human being. He is a man. He is God, yes, but he is also man. Now, do not lose out on this precious truth. Because, you see, Jesus understands who you are. He understands your problems. He understands your needs. He has walked the earth. Jesus is a man. The third thing we see about Jesus is that not only is he God, and not only is he man, he is also, John calls him, our advocate. So you see, the Reformation also recovered our relationship with Jesus. Before it, Jesus was seen as someone who might act on us, not who would act for us. There's a big difference in that. He was seen as being distant, someone we could not hope to approach. And that was why the church had set up this system of intermediaries with priests and teachers and saints, etc. And they also had a system of relics and totems that were supposed to help people in dealing with Jesus. Have you ever wondered why in the medieval church they were trying to find a nail from the true cross or a cloth from the Last Supper or a piece of wood of the cross? Why would they want these things? It's because these things were thought to give people an in toward Jesus. That Jesus would pay attention to them. That he would care about them. That he might allow them to approach him. If they had these things. But the truth of the Bible is that Jesus is our advocate. You see, sin was seen in the days before the Reformation as being all-consuming. Man could never hope to approach God. He could never hope to even be forgiven. And so the goal that each person had was to try to do good works to outweigh the bad things they did. It was as if they would go before the Lord and all of their sins would be stacked up on one scale and they would stack up all of the good things they did on another scale and hope that the good outweighed the bad. But the reformers instead went back to a biblical view of sin. That sin is something that can be fought against, that should be fought against. 
Now, sin may be common to everyone, but that doesn't mean we should take it for granted and be lackadaisical about it. This is what John means in verse 1 of chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John is telling us that if we claim to be the children of God, if we claim to know God, we should not want to sin. And the Lord has given us help in fighting sin. That's why John says, I'm writing these things to you. Now, what is John writing to us? If you look back at chapter 1, you will see that John is writing back to us about who Jesus is. And Jesus' relationship to the Father. You see, what they're doing is John is emphasizing the relationship that Jesus has with the Father. And so we have help in combating sin. Sin is a reality in our lives. You see, John says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate. And who is that advocate? It is Jesus Christ. So when we are overwhelmed, what do we do? We go to Jesus. We don't try to work our way out of the situation. When times are toughest, when we're at a loss, when we think there's no way out, we are to go to Jesus. Because Jesus is God's provision for us. Jesus is our advocate. He appears on our behalf. And this also links in with the other solas of the Reformation. For if we are saved by grace alone, and we can bring nothing, and if we are saved through faith alone, trusting in Jesus, then it makes sense that we must have this advocate alone, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We can't plead our own merits. We can't seek to have our good deeds outweigh our bad things. We instead need Jesus to plead for us. Jesus pleads His worth. He pleads His righteousness. And in every way, Jesus intercedes for us. This is why He had to be both God and man. Only as God could He satisfy the demands of God's justice. Only as man could he suffer and die for sins. And only as both could he stand between God and man. Who is Jesus? He's God. He's man. He is our advocate. The second question that we ask is, what has Jesus done? And John uses an interesting phrase here in describing Jesus. He calls him Jesus Christ, the righteous. What has Jesus done? Well, Jesus is righteous. It's a pronouncement that John makes. Jesus is the one who is just. He is the one who is right. And this highlights the difference between Jesus and us. Paul tells us, that we are lost in a state of sin. You remember in Ephesians chapter 2, we were told that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Paul puts it even more starkly 
in Romans 3, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. There is no room for an exception here. You can't say, well, I'm righteous because, or I think I could be righteous because. No, Paul says, no, no one, not one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. That describes the estate of man in sin. What a contrast with Jesus. Because Jesus is righteous. Now Jesus was a man who was born under the law and had to obey the law. We know this from Galatians chapter 4. But this sounds odd to our ears at first. How could the one who is the law giver obey the law? It is critical to our salvation to understand this because Jesus lived a perfect life. He was sinless in all his ways. He was tempted, the Bible says, but he never sinned. For 40 days and 40 nights, the Gospels tell us, Satan himself tempted Jesus. But he never gave in once to temptation. But this does mean that Jesus understands our weaknesses and our temptations, with the difference being that he did not fall. Hebrews puts it this way, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now the Bible speaks about this in two ways. It first tells us that Jesus never sinned. Peter says this in 1 Peter 2, 22. That means that Jesus never did anything that was wrong, either in action or in word or even in thought. He never disobeyed the Father like we do. But there is a second way we must look at this. And that is that Jesus also did everything that was required of him. He never failed to do what the law commanded. That means that Jesus was compassionate. He was loving. He was faithful. In his life, Jesus is everything we were supposed to be. Jesus has fulfilled the law. He is perfectly righteous and holy. Jesus is righteous. Now, the fact that Jesus is righteous is critical to our salvation because Jesus is the one who makes atonement. Jesus has made atonement. You see, we have sinned, and as a result, we deserve death. The Bible is very clear about this in Romans chapter 6. For the wages of sin is death. James writes in James 1, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So we are dead in our sins, and we cannot save ourselves. And we deserve death at the hands of a wrathful God. We looked at this a few weeks ago, when we looked at salvation by grace alone, that we have nothing to bring to God, that we cannot escape our sin. But Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the law. 
He is not due any punishment at all because he is sinless. He can stand before the Father and be declared righteous and true. Now, why is this so important? It's because Jesus' death on the cross then purchases life for us. He died an innocent, undeserving of the wrath of God. The one who perfectly kept the law. The one who is righteous. And so his death is not punishment for his own sins. His death is an atonement for our sins. John puts it this way. He is the propitiation for our sins. Now this is more than an advocate. An advocate pleads the case. But he's not at risk. If you've ever had an opportunity to be in court with a lawyer, you know that your lawyer is going to defend you zealously, try to win the case for you. But at the end of the day, if you lose, it's on you, not him. I have never met a lawyer who said, we lost the case, can I write you a check? I have never seen that. You see, Jesus is not only an advocate... He is the one who makes atonement. He put himself at risk. He stood in our place, taking the punishment we deserved. He is the propitiation, John says. Now, if this sounds like a bit of an odd word, it's not used very much today. There are even modern versions of the Bible that take this word out and use another phrase. It's because we're not very comfortable with the idea of propitiation. Because propitiation is satisfaction for wrath. And we don't like to think about the wrath of God. We don't like to think about our own sin. We don't like to think about an angry God. We like to think that God somewhere up there is not paying attention to us when we sin, that He turns a blind eye, and that everything will work out just fine in the end. But the Bible doesn't tell us that. The Bible tells us that sin deserves death and that everyone sins. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And the only way to stop the wrath of God against sin is for it to be satisfied in punishment and justice. There is no winking at sin. God doesn't pretend your sin doesn't exist. Your sin has been satisfied by the death of Jesus Christ. Now, I dare say that would make us a bit more conscious about the way we live if we lived in the forefront of our minds, knowing that every time we lie, every time we sin, every time we steal, every time we belittle someone, Jesus has to pay the price for that sin. God's wrath must be satisfied. And the good news of the gospel is, is that God is satisfied by Jesus. It's not just that God looks kindly on people who believe in Jesus. God is just and must forgive and redeem those who are in Christ. Stop and think about that for a moment. It's not as if God comes to an individual choice with each one of us. Well, you believe in Jesus, but I'm not so sure about you. You believe in Jesus, but you've done some good things too, so I'll let you in. No, 
When we believe upon Jesus Christ, a great transaction happens. Our sin is put on Jesus, and His righteousness is put on us. And the wrath of God is satisfied. We don't have anything left to fear at all. Because there is nothing left to do. Jesus has done everything. That's why we confess solus Christus, Christ alone. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus has done everything, why would you try to add anything to your salvation? Are you trusting Jesus alone today? Because you see, there are so many things in our lives that try to sneak in, that try to steal our trust. Children look to their parents and think if their parents are okay, then they're okay. Parents look to their work and the things that they've done. We all look to our accomplishments. But the truth of the Word of God is that we can only look to Jesus. Because only Jesus saves. And Jesus alone saves. Finally, Jesus not only has made atonement, He has made the way of salvation. You see, there is a final aspect to this only in Christ. Jesus only saves. Nothing needs to be added to Jesus. It is not Jesus plus anything. But there is another thing, that Jesus is the only Savior. There is no other Savior besides Jesus. You cannot go looking for another Savior. Jesus is the only way of salvation. John puts it this way in his gospel. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here John puts it with respect to the extent of the atonement in verse 2. He says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see, it doesn't matter where you were born or where you live. If you come from Brazil, or from China, or Japan, or Nigeria, or England or France, or Canada, or America. It doesn't matter where you come from. There is only one Savior for you, and that Savior is Jesus. There is no one besides Jesus. There is no other place to turn. And the Reformation truth of Jesus Christ alone is critical for us today because there are so many other voices trying to tell us other things. Things like, well, don't worry, all roads lead to God. Or, how can you be so exclusive and insist that everybody believe on Jesus? What we have to declare is what the Bible declares over and over again, that Jesus only saves and that Jesus fully saves. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And then in the next chapter, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 
Do you believe this morning in salvation by grace alone? Through faith alone? By Jesus Christ alone? It was the recovery of these teachings that turned the world upside down again in the years following Martin Luther. But more importantly for you and for me, it is the understanding of these teachings that can turn your life right side up again. You have hope for tomorrow because of Jesus. Jesus only saves. Believe in Jesus Christ alone. Truly man, truly God, your righteous advocate who has made atonement for you and your sins and who has opened up the way of salvation. Put your faith and trust in Jesus for he alone is enough for the soul. Let's pray.